Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, and welcome to a special episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. Recently, Aaron and I got the chance to talk about Stanley Kubrick's film, Full Metal Jacket. Soon after, we discovered that Matthew Modine, one of the stars of the film, actually kept a diary while he was on set. In 2005, Matthew decided that he wanted to take his diary and publish it as a limited edition book. About five years later, his friend and producer, Adam Rakoff, approached Matthew and asked him if he'd be interested in converting his diary into an ebook. What came next was a fully interactive iPad app that gave us a glimpse of Modine's life as he was working on this film. We had a chance recently to sit down and talk to both Matthew and Adam. We hope you enjoyed this two-part interview. First up is our conversation with Adam Rakoff. In it, we get a chance to hear about his relationship with Matthew, as well as how the iPad app came to be what it is today. Hi, everyone. With us today is a very special guest, Adam Rakoff short film producer extraordinaire and innovative iPad app developer. Welcome, Adam. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. So to set the stage just a little bit, Patrick and I recently covered Full Metal Jacket on the podcast during a January full of reviewing Stanley Kubrick films. We were both big fans and sought out more information about the movie, which led us to discovering Full Metal Jacket Diary, the autobiographical book, audiobook, iPad app, that you helped Matthew Modine release. It's awesome to have you here and talking to us. And so I figured we would just start by asking you some questions about that piece of media. Definitely. I think what we really want to know more than anything <laughs> is where did you come from? How did you get into this? And specifically, how did you meet Matthew and come to work with him on this project of Full Metal Jacket Diary. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's a sort of odd um, course of events. <laughs> the, uh, you know, my initial passion growing up, I always loved movies, like lots of kids. Uh, I always thought that I might want to work in film in some way, shape, or form. I, I love to draw. I, I initially wanted to be an illustrator or animator, um, or doing storyboards or poster designs. I love the poster art of Drew Struzan and so many other, when they used to paint posters, I just, I loved all that stuff. So I thought as a teenager, that might be where I was going to go down that path. Went to college, study animation, film, became more interested in, in live action and animation than I did, you know, the, uh, the drawing, illustrating side of things. And, uh, Somehow, <laughs> I ended up getting recruited to work for Apple Computer after college. I went to Rochester Institute of Technology and, uh, and sort of studied a lot of aspects of film and technology there. And so um, at the time, this was in, when I graduated, it was in 2001, and there was a lot of uh, – the, the landscape was changing a lot from going to film to early digital 
and everyone was sort of starting to explore editing on Mac computers for the first time with early incarnations of Final Cut Pro, which I knew inside out. So I, I started working uh, for Apple in marketing and in, in uh, promotions. And actually, my, my role was uh, there was a, a, a variety of different things I was responsible for. But one of the things that I ended up sort of managing after a couple years was a series called Made on a Mac, which was a uh, event series where we would invite filmmakers or photographers or any creative professional to give a talk or a workshop about a project that they produced or created using Apple technology. And one of these events was a talk with Matthew Modine to promote the release of his book, Full Metal Jacket Diary, in 2005. So this was an initial hardcover, limited edition book. Um, every copy actually had a laser-etched serial number on the back. One of 20,000 copies uh, were produced. And uh, we had Matthew come actually to the Apple Store in Soho in New York City, and he spoke uh, at length about the making of the film. He, did, he gave a slideshow presentation of his photographs, and uh, it was such a, a success. I mean, the, the, this, the, this store had a theater space, um, but it was like overflowing down the Genius Bar <laughs> all over the store. People were standing to listen to this, these Full Metal Jacket stories. And I think it has a lot to do with, with just the allure of Kubrick and learning anything more about what that master filmmaker might have been like on set or in private even. So that was such a big event that we ended up actually at, you know, when I worked for Apple, taking that kind of show on the road. And we had Matthew do the same talk in London at the Regent Street store and in Chicago at the North Michigan Avenue store. And, uh, and Matthew and I came, you know, kept in touch. We became friendly. Um, and uh, both living in New York, we would get together from time to time and talk about projects, technology. Um, and that's actually a, another one of my responsibilities at Apple was, um, supporting filmmakers or actors that lived in New York and helping them with their um, their projects if they were working in Final Cut Pro or doing something unique using the technology. I would sometimes go to their homes or meet up with them and help them in some way. So Matthew and I kept in touch. I eventually decided to go back to my passion of filmmaking and and get back into what I real sort of originally wanted to do, which was work in film and, and make films or be a part of making films. So I left Apple, Apple after about a decade uh, and, um, and reached out to Matthew with this idea. I had one of the first things I thought of when the first iPad was introduced in 2010 was that um, it, it could be a great medium for a new type of, of book experience where you would have interactive elements, you would have audio, music, um, just that there could be so, there was a lot of potential there. Again, this, these are in the very early days of tablet computers, so things obviously have, have come a long way since then. feels like they've been around a lot longer I, than I 2010. Know. I mean, I feel like we've I had know. them for two decades. I know. I mean, there were other sort of early... Um, attempts, but obviously the the first iPad 
that came out. I think it was the spring of 2010. That was sort of like the first big mainstream um, popular tablet computer. So I pitched Matthew on this, this idea. I said, you know, I know you wanted the book, the original hardcover book to be limited edition and special. And he didn't want to do a paperback edition because the book actually sold out rather quickly in 2005. There were um, really no more copies available, except sometimes they would pop up on Amazon. You know, they might find a box here or there where people would sell used copies. So people were often reaching out to him saying, hey, when I want to I want to read it. Uh, how can I get my hands on a copy? Or are you going to do another edition or a paperback? And he was like, no, no, I want those copies to be special kind of, you know, keepsakes that people can pass down to their children one day. Like he really had he felt like it was a work of art. And it was, you know, it was a, a beautifully made book with a metal cover and uh, the photographs were beautifully printed yeah, it was it was a really beautiful, and th- again, that was what he talked about. Also, was the making of the book, designing it, laying it out on on a Mac computer back in two thousand five. So, the uh, the idea that I had was sort of well, let's make this something unique and different, so that the books retain that that element of of exclusivity. You know that they are still special. For those that own one, but they may even want to experience it in a new way themselves by, you know, getting this app and being able to not only see everything uh, on the iPad, but also hear Matthew recording, reading his diary in his own voice. Um, also, uh, part of what I proposed was we would go back and find all the original negatives and rescan them um, as at a really high resolution so that you can zoom in on photographs and really see detail that you can't see in, in the, in the printed, uh, book, uh, because the prints that were, the book used scans of actual prints that Matthew had made. They, they weren't scans from the original camera negatives. And these were photographs taken with a, uh, a Rolleiflex film camera, which is a large, well, medium format film camera, uh, two and a quarter by two and a quarter inch negatives. So these are really large negatives that, you know, captured a lot of information. So when you started doing these high resolution scans of the negatives, just like when you restore a a 35 millimeter film in 4K, you start to see detail that you never realized was there before. And the iPad had the capability of of featuring this, of allowing people to really explore those photographs in new ways. So, yeah, and we also decided that during this process that we could add more. You know, a book has limitations. You you know, 200 pages is all we can do, you know, for the, the size of the book. So we got to make choices. We got to cut photos. We got to cut a few diary passages or whatever. This was a chance where I mean, yeah, the file size of the app might increase slightly, but it's not really the same type of concern. So we could include a lot more content than we did that than Matthew had with the printed book. So Matthew loved the idea. We got started developing to kind of really in the early days, just sort of searching for for material, searching for those old negatives, searching for for um, other interesting things that we might want to include because his wife actually kept all these great scrapbooks from all the movies he made throughout the 80s. So newspaper clippings, like 
pr premiere tickets, all kinds of really cool things. So we were able to scan those as well and incorporate them into the diary. So there are, you know, old reviews, old articles. So it's really kind of a way to see kind of what people were talking about at that point in time about Matthew and about his casting in the movie. There was this whole controversy around, I, I think it was um, the actor that was in Breakfast Club um, was initially uh, supposed to play Private Joker, but there was a lot of drama back and forth with with that. So yeah, it was just, there was a lot of stuff going on um, in the 80s with all these young actors getting a lot of attention. He wasn't really part of that rat pack that people are familiar with, but he was of the same age. So it was a very, you know, it was this new generation of young actors and they were all vying for the, a lot of them vying for this role uh, in Stanley Kubrick's next film. So it's a really interesting story, I think, because it, it, it's so fascinating, not just to people that like film, but it's great for aspiring actors. It's great for aspiring filmmakers. It's great for students. It's just such a, it's an educational um, sort of experience in many ways, I think. So that's, that's kind of the, you know, sorry for the long <laughs> introduction, but that's kind of how we got to working together and starting to develop the project. Then, of course, the developing process took two years. <laughs> it was a long you know, much like the film itself, it ended up taking much longer than we anticipated. Um, and just sort of expanding, like the ideas that we had kept changing how we wanted to handle uh, certain materials and what we wanted to do with it. And of course, there was always technical road, roadblocks uh, as we were sort of developing something that didn't exist. There was no framework for what we were doing out there. So we really were building that from scratch. And that, of course, proved to be a uh, one of the bigger challenges. Yeah, so I, you mentioned that that he was a little apprehensive at first because of the the passion and the love that he had for the format of the original hardcover, which, by the way, sounds pretty incredible. I actually haven't seen this. This is, uh, yeah, I Aaron's point. I want. Yeah, <laughs> when you yeah, said April that, 23rd, Aaron. Patrick, that's my birthday. <laughs> I know it's your birthday. I don't know why you're telling me that. <laughs> so that our listeners will know my birthday in case they want to find this. This We might have to do a Kickstarter thing. to get you that. Instead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Kickstarter there. But, it, I guess it's safe to say that, that Matthew was incredibly pleased with the final product, especially with what it ended up becoming in terms of being not just the audiobook, but also this, this app and all this interactivity. Does he consider that, uh, or do you guys both consider this sort of a, I know it's the same subject matter, but do you consider it its own separate kind of masterpiece, its own separate kind of piece of art? Uh, off because of because of the different things that it offers beyond just the reading experience. Yeah, I think we do. I think, I mean, it was its own project. In in it was in some in some ways, and I've worked on documentaries as well. In some ways, this was so much harder. It was kind of like making a documentary in many respects, but so much harder because of the the technical challenges that come in with developing something um, for. Uh, you know, an iPad or an iPhone or, or, or really any, any computer project is just, there's so many additional issues. But um, in, aside from that, it really did feel like we were making a documentary about his diary because we were doing all the same things necessary when preparing a documentary. We were collecting, you know, old, 
old clips. Like we actually thought at one point that we were going to try to get our hands on some old film footage that Stanley's daughter, Vivian Kubrick filmed during the making of the movie. But um, it didn't, it didn't work out for a number of reasons, but we were trying to think of ways to incorporate video more of, there's a little bit of video in it, but we were hoping to incorporate some more. Um, but as I mentioned before, it did grow, it did expand. And as a result, I really think we did create something special and unique um, that we kind of, uh, we were joking that it was kind of an appumentary. And then once, once Entertainment Weekly looked at it, they actually called it an appumentary in their review. So we were like, wow, we kind of maybe coined a new term here. <laughs> and uh, I- I'm sure there are other apps out there that do similar things by at this point but at the time i think we were we we must have been one of the first doing anything like this um there's a lot of sort of second screen experience apps out these days but at the time i think it was really uh somewhat original especially in the way that you interact with it the way you can kind of move through the matthew's diary um and there's a a a photograph or or some type of image that corresponds to what you're reading and also hearing if you're, you know, going through it, uh, and listening as well. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I'm very proud of what we were able to create. It was a small team of us, uh, one programmer, one designer, myself, Matthew, and a musician who helped us compose some original music that you hear in the background. It's very, very subtle. It's just sort of meant to enhance the, the mood a little bit to kind of make you feel a little bit more, of what Matthew was feeling at the time when he was making the movie, because these are his words, his notes, his diary entries that he made while making the movie. This is, that is what differentiates this from most sort of retrospective books or look, you know, when you look back on the making of a movie after 25, 30 years, that's you now thinking about it. Right. I, I, I was, as I was listening to it, uh, one of the things that stood out to me was the way in which he stays in the present tense a lot of the time. And in fact, you know, the fact that, and I, and I, having not read the actual book, I'm assuming that that's what he was writing, but I think it's such a fantastic choice to make because the word that keeps coming to mind as you're talking is the sense of immersion. This idea that as a, as a, it, we're not spectators at this point, we're participants right. in the life of what he experienced throughout this experience with, uh, with full metal jacket and and I think that's what gives it its strength is the yeah. fact that it becomes personal to us because it was personal to him as opposed to what you say, uh, what you mentioned, him just reading, you know, diary entry one, diary, I did this, I did that. Well, when you say something's in the past, there's not really a, a visceral connection to that. Uh, I, I think that's a very incredibly smart choice to be able to keep it in the present tense because it, it seems like that's the purpose, one of the purposes behind this this project is to get your audience to participate rather than just listen and and spectate at that point. Yeah, I agree completely. We wanted people to feel like they were going down this path with Matthew uh, as a 26-year-old, not a 50-something-year-old actor, but a 26-year-old version of Matthew who was just newly married. His wife was pregnant. He was living in London. You know, there were so many different aspects to it that could have been left out. We could have chosen to remove some of those personal elements, but we, we, everyone felt that it was so important that it include everything from not just the on-set entries, but the personal entries, 
about everything he was experiencing and feeling because it all connects. It all kind of goes together, especially when you get to parts where his wife is um, going into labor and, and Kubrick won't let, let him leave the set to be with his wife who actually was having an emergency cesarean section and yet he was still being kind of a jerk saying, what are you going to do? You can't do anything there. You know, you, oh, there's no role yeah. for you. So that part really got me. And then, and then wanting it to change the name, like that name sucks. Yeah. I was like, well, are you kidding me right now? I know. Um, so it, it actually, what you just said reminds me a lot of kind of the way that I approach my movie reviews, my written reviews is because I, I have a section at the beginning where I specifically talk about my expectations of a film Right. And then I give my review. And that's it's kind of like that because you're getting the background of Matthew and not just the actor perspective of the film itself. And because of that, it makes his experience on the set, it gives it it gives it a, a background. It gives it more kind of fluid understanding because you have all of that information and you, you know what was going on at home, what was going on in his friendships, what other projects he was working on. I mean, that was fascinating to me oh, to yeah. hear about, you know, the other movies that he was trying to secure while he's still working on full metal jacket. Cause we don't really think of that as fans. We're like, Oh, you know, that person went over there, they made that movie and that was it. Um, I, I wonder if something like this can be replicated because I feel like this, massive amount of data these pictures this diary all of this scrapbook stuff that his wife was able to keep is not something that we are going to have as much of in this day and age and sure we have digital stuff like i guess i guess these days you could make an app with a whole bunch of tweets you know <laughs> yeah screenshots <laughs> but i you know is it something that you've ever thought about trying to take further do again do with someone else or was this just kind of a perfect storm like a one-shot deal you think yeah, we actually we actually thought it could be something that we could offer to others, you know, to do with their films or with content that other uh, actors may have. But I think, as you said, it is it was kind of a perfect storm because we just had this plethora of content to work with that, unfortunately, most actors and directors just didn't, at least back then, didn't keep or have access to in the same way. I mean, the fact that he also was given permission by Stanley Kubrick to take his own photographs on set is 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 really key here because that tells another part of the story, the visual side. Um, and he actually took photographs not just with the Rolleiflex, but he also had a 35 millimeter um, film camera from that kind of mid 80s period that he was also shooting with. So he has a variety of different formats. And, uh, yeah, I, I just, I don't think if you ask most actors, they might snap a shot here, or there or something, uh, but they're not sort of documenting the process. But again, it does tie into the character he was playing. He was playing a Marine, um, war correspondent for stars and stripes. He had a camera. It wasn't the camera he was shooting with, but he had a camera around his neck through most of the film. Um, so it was part of his way of getting into character, you know, taking photographs, observing things around him. Uh, so it, it made sense from that respect. And, uh, and so did the diary taking, as Matthew often says, he, he, um, at first was doing it more as an exercise, but as Stanley would see him making notes, jotting things down on set, he would 
sometimes ask him to stand up and read what he was writing. And, and he would go, oh, oh, okay, Uh-oh. kind of stand up and, <laughs> and read it out loud for everybody. And, uh, and then he says, he says that made him be more thoughtful about what he was writing down and also be a better writer about you know, what he was writing. So, um, again, I don't think we would have such a, a great product if he hadn't ta- taken such incredible notes and diary entries that were so well thought out, almost poetic in many cases in, in the way that he wrote them. Uh, he's a good writer, but he, he didn't need to, to take that extra step to, to write. A lot of people do keep journals, but they just kind of write in shorthand. They don't really kind of keep um, such detailed notes about what they were feeling and thinking or even remembering. You know, he would write down conversations he had verbatim with Kubrick or with Vincent D'Onofrio and you know he would write down in his diary what he what they said to him and his responses because he wanted to remember those interactions how many people do that (laughs) no one I I was thinking about that on when I was listening to it I was thinking to myself you know oh I should do this and I'm gonna quit doing that by noon you know if I start on on the at 8 a.m in the morning I'm done like yeah I don't because I'm gonna think to myself no one's gonna care about that later um, right. But thankfully, he, he did. And he didn't think he was going to do anything with it. That's the other sort of irony here is that he never anticipated publishing the photographs or making a book. It was never it was the last thing on his mind while making this film. He was just like, I'm working with Stanley Kubrick. You know, I, I just have to do I have to deliver the goods. I have to make a good movie like there, there was no concept that 20 or more years later this could turn into its own thing separate from the film yeah it sounds like the creative process for you guys is a lot like when you make well any kind of film you're you're telling a story and i guess the big question that you ask at some point early on is what's the story that we're going to tell and you have the material you mentioned so many times that you had so much content to work with did you guys have to storyboard or outline to say what or ask in general, just ask the question, what's the story we're going to tell? Because obviously the diary was going to be the engine for this, this app and everything that came along with it. But was there a certain type of message, certain type of, was there a story specifically that you guys were going to say, this is what we want. This is a story we want to tell. Yeah. Well, because as, as you said, that the actual, the words were there. So that was the foundation for it. What became the challenge was was finding a way to tell that story visually as well, because yes, he took a lot of photographs, but there are big gaps in the um, in the diary where he didn't take photographs. There just were times where he wasn't shooting for whatever the reason, and so to be able to show visually something that corresponded to those diary entries became a huge challenge because yes, we had an abundance of certain parts of the filmmaking process, but we were missing imagery for other parts. So that became a whole new challenge in that I began reaching out to anybody I could get to that was working on the set at the time, whether they were crew members or extras and asking anybody if they had some photographs and that they may have been sort of secretly shooting. And I was able to get from a, four different people that worked on the film um, a number of really great shots that 
enhanced the app incredibly. One guy in particular named Tony Hayes, he was an extra uh, that was there throughout the entire film. He was one of the boot camp extras, and he also played one of the extras uh, in Vietnam. He uh, he probably had taken, again, with a cheap little point-and-shoot film camera of the era, he probably took 17 or 18 rolls of film, which he actually sent me all the negatives. So I took the responsibility to have them scanned and they were in bad shape some of these were just you know like just in horrible conditions so they had to be restored this was an incredible extra amount of work but to be able to have all these extra pictures of matthew because this is now suddenly a chance to see the other side where it's not just from matthew's point of view now we're going to see pictures of matthew on set you know, with his camera, with, uh, you know, with him writing in his diary. So we were able to get this the kind of reverse perspective. And we were very fortunate to have that. I'm sure there are many more people who took photographs on the set out there that uh, if ever there was a chance, I would love to get those photographs too and continue to sort of enhance the app. Because that's the one great thing about an app is that it can be updated at any time. We could incorporate new photographs. We have some bonus galleries in the app as well photos that we just couldn't find room for because because we ended up getting essentially more than we needed uh, at the end so i would love to add more photographs that enhance it even further because it really has become sort of like this archival process of documenting the the filmmaking experience and we have this great like outline of matthews from his diary of that process and as I said, it was really just a process then of finding the the visual elements that corresponded uh, the best. And uh, I was very very happy with what we ended up getting. And you you mentioned kind of storyboarding. We actually kind of did do that. We kind of had to lay out like thumbnails of all the images and sort of figure out like where they could be utilized best. In a few cases, we really didn't know when a photo was taken and Matthew just couldn't remember. It just was, there was nothing really clear. Um, so we had to sort of figure these things out. We reached out to, to Leon Vitali, who is Stanley Kubrick's longtime um, assistant. And he didn't have any photographs, but he remembers everything. There's a new documentary out about him as well called Film Worker. If you haven't had a chance to see it, um, it's making the festival rounds right now. It, it played in New York and, I think it premiered at Cannes to rave reviews this past spring. Um, so I don't know what the release window is for that, or I don't know when it's going to be available, but it's an excellent film about uh, this guy, Leon, who was who played um, Bowling, Lord Bullington in um, Barry Lyndon. And he was just, he came on as an actor, but he became enamored with, with Kubrick and wanting to learn about the filmmaking process. So he ended up um, staying and working with him and sort of working and doing anything and everything Kubrick needed for through um, Stanley's death. So he was really with him from Barry Lyndon all the way through. So, But Matthew became very good friends with Leon and on the set of Full Metal Jacket. So he was a great resource as well. He would sometimes look at a photograph and be like, oh, that, he's British. So he'd be like, oh, that's from the road to way. That was that, yeah. And he'd be like, that was shot just outside of London, you know. And he would remember like the location or the name of the road, or it's just like, you know. Whereas Matthew, as an actor, was just so focused on, 
you know, his lines and making sure he was performing, you know, he, he wasn't making such, such great notes, at least not with, at least not with the photographs because he didn't even have them developed until, you know, months and months later. So yeah, it, it's, um, it's, it's, it was an interesting, um, process that we went through to kind of figure all this out. And, and then of course, recording Matthew was a whole nother, <laughs> um, challenge, but also interesting creative process. So that was, that was one of our, our kind of last questions actually about the app was wh where did that decision come from to have him narrate? Because his voice is amazing <laughs> for lack of a better word. It is so smooth and just, it is an easy listening voice. And I think having that level of personal attachment I mean, you even had him do the different voices of of other actors in the in the movie when they were being quoted, versus having you know other people come in and do those things. And those all of those aspects really enhanced the project for me. And I wondered where that decision came from. Yeah. So early on, actually, Matthew said to me, "Let's get some other people in here and." and record, you know, them doing these voices. It, it'll be great. I have, you know, act, lots of actor friends. I would love to be a part of this project. And um, there was even talk at one point about trying to get some of the people like Vincent D'Onofrio to come in and read his lines. And, and, um, and I actually thought it was a really cool idea at first. And, and but then I kind of started thinking more and more about the fact that this is actually Matthew's personal diary. These are his personal thoughts. We're supposed to be in his head. So, Having him read everything, including, you know, doing his impression of Stanley Kubrick when Kubrick has lines, I thought was really important because what we're getting is not just the words that are being said, but also kind of with Matthew's performance, we're getting a, uh, a little bit of kind of how he really felt about Kubrick, you know, like about, you know, only anyone could read the lines that Matthew wrote but only Matthew could read them the way he remembers Kubrick saying them and with the right tone and all of that. So that became something really important to me. And I think he quickly agreed that this will be, yes, a bit of a challenge for him, but it would actually add uh, to the, the sort of emotional journey that, as you said before, that we're going on with him, that we're hearing his interpretation of those words and not just a performance of somebody else right. reading and, them. And the interpretation, I think, is the key word there because when I'm listening to him talk and I'm hearing him you know, make these conversations come alive between he and Kubrick specifically, but also with others, the, the one of the things that stood out to me specifically was the way in which he, he made him... Uh, he vocalized Kubrick's, um, <clears throat> you know, his, his, yeah. uh, his, his throat clearing. clearing. Yeah. <laughs> and so over the course of the, of, of listening to this, what you get is your own idea of kind of a tertiary idea of who Kubrick was, because you're right. I mean, had we gotten somebody else famous or not to voice Kubrick's voice, it's almost like when you, when you read a comic book and you're, you're reading Iron Man right now, but all you can see is Robert Downey Jr. or you yeah. can hear his voice when you hear Tony when you read Tony Stark or Iron Man on the printed page in the same way I think you would lose that when you have other actors because now you're associating this actor Morgan Freeman whoever as 
playing the part of X, Y, or Z. And the fact is, when we think about other people, like if I'm thinking about a conversation that I'm having with Aaron in my head, I'm hearing his voice. But if I were to articulate that, it would be my interpretation of his voice uh, as I do that. And I think that that's probably where the magic of of this comes from, is the fact that we're getting equally more personal with Matthew because we're hearing what Kubrick sounds like in his head. Right. And and I think that's great. I think it makes for a more immersive experience as opposed to the radio drama style, which I, I appreciate, but that's not the story it sounds like you guys were telling. You're telling a personal story, not a story that has factual elements mixed in with it, like maybe a biopic or something like that. This right. this is more like a documentary, an documentary in this case. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it adds to the authenticity of what you guys were going for. Yeah, it's a, it, one thing I, I was thinking of early on is, you know, this isn't, there, there aren't a lot of things like this. One thing that I was going back to repeatedly is like Ken Burns' Civil War documentary where people were reading these old letters from, you know, the, the, the front lines and things, but they were, these were artifacts. These were the real words being written by the people. Obviously, these people are long gone, so they can't read them, so you have to have actors do it. But we have the person that, that wrote the words, so why not have them? Like, that was kind of what I was thinking. Like, I was going back and forth between, are we going to do something like what Ken Burns did, or are we going to do something where we're really going in down the rabbit hole with Matthew? And, like, this is all about uh, we're in his head. And, that, and that's what we did and, we, and why we added sound effects, because we wanted to kind of, again, make it as immersive in his in his mind as possible. If he was hearing certain things, if um, he was feeling something, we tried to bring that out a little more through sound design and even some, as I said before, some very subtle musical pads that kind of just helped to sort of enhance the, what, again, this was all Matthew telling me in many cases, like what was going on or elaborating on what was happening or what he was feeling. Um, Because there certainly is a lot more than what, is written and that's part of what I loved about working on the project is you sort of dived even deeper into the process. And while we were recording, you know, Matthew would tell me so many additional stories and just, it it just expanded upon part of me thinks I made a mistake. I didn't document the recording process. (laughs) It's like, now you have to document everything because you should have Matthew Modine it. Yeah. You should have had a camera and, so then 25 years from now, it would have made the full Metal Jacket diary diary, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is awesome, Adam. It's such awesome insight. Um, I, you know, I personally have always kind of had a little bit of a gap in my understanding of what producers do. And so hearing you describe that creative process and really how you go through the thought and, and try to discover what you want to do with it, the decision-making right. is really interesting. And I, obviously that's what you do generally as a producer. And so this has led to a seemingly great relationship between you guys. I know you have many short films. I called you a short film uh, extraordinaire uh, <laughs> at the beginning because that's a lot of your credits really have to do with short films. And so I wondered how that developed, how this, how did this transition into your short film work with both Adam and other directors and creators? Well, you know, we, um, 
as we were developing this, I mentioned earlier, it took about two years to complete from its sort of initial initial conception all the way through to its its release. It came out in mid uh, July of 2012, which was the uh, tw- happened to be the 25th anniversary, which was actually kind of our goal. We're like, we have to get it done by the 25th anniversary because this will tie in really nicely to uh, any celebration that might be taking place. And there were some some things that that we ended up being able to um, get incorporate. We, we were able to, for example, um, get a little promotional flyer put in the Blu-ray release that came out that, that year for Full Metal Jacket. It was a they call it a digibook edition. So it, it was a Blu-ray that opened up like a book and it had like a 50-page photo booklet and some of Matthew's photos, that was kind of the deal. We would give Warner Brothers some of Matthew's on-set photographs to incorporate in this booklet that goes with the, the Blu-ray and maybe you slip in a little something that says, you know, the new iPad app is available now, something like that. So they said yes, surprisingly. So we were able to um, tie into that, which was great. Um, but you know, during that two-year period, there were were a lot of period downtime periods. I, I guess all I could say is that there were times when we were waiting on our on our programmer to figure something out, or waiting on the guy who was doing the scanning to get through, you know, two hundred negatives that he just got handed to him. So we had a lot of that kind of just okay, well, what are we going to do in between all this? A- Matthew, of course, was doing some acting. He was shooting, this is around the time he filmed uh, The Dark Knight Rises, his his part for that. But even that had a lot of downtime. You know, it's a big movie, and there's a lot of scenes that he was not in. <laughs> so there was all this sort of time that we just sort of said, what else can we work on? Maybe let's just do something for fun. So uh, we partnered up with another a uh, friend of ours, an editor named Terrence Siegler, and we made our first short film together called Jesus Was a Commie. <laughs> and before anyone gets offended, it's it's really not about communism or Jesus. It's a, it's sort of a purposely provocative title, but really it's just a it's it's sort of a, a film about the current state of our of our world and how we perceive things. You really have to see it. It's actually on, you can watch it online on Vimeo. It's free. Um, that film played at film festivals, got a lot of praise and it was a fun experience, but it was sort of an experimental film. It wasn't narrative in a traditional sense. It's mostly Matthew narrating. So we got to record him again. This is something he wrote and we filmed him sort of walking around the city. It's a lot like a, it is in many ways like a mini documentary in again, in the, the way it was produced. So it was again, another um, project that wasn't a documentary, but it involved the same steps necessary in terms of finding photographs and, and video clips and, you know, footage that we could incorporate in to basically enhance the voiceover narration that, that Matthew had recorded. So that led to, us continuing to work on short films. I've always loved short films. I, I think that they're the best medium for filmmakers to really make movies that they want to make without any restrictions because no one will no one will tell you what to do with a short film. No one's gonna get in your way. You basically have freedom to tell your story. 
And in many ways, it's harder to tell a short film because a story in a short film because you have to do it so much quicker. You don't have time to build up characters, and it's a bit, it's it's a real challenge. But the uh, the process is very rewarding, and you can make them faster, and that's also rewarding. You don't have features can take years, and it's a slow process, and before you're done with it, you know, you could spend just like we did with this app, you could spend two, three years on a feature and, and before you even really see the results or see where it's going to, where it's going to lead. So yeah, we, we did a bunch of other shorts together as well. One's called Mary Xmas with Dick Van Dyke and Valerie Harper. And it's a really funny comedy short. Uh, we actually had Matthew's son, Bowman Modine direct that one, which was uh, a great opportunity for him to direct real actors. He's an aspiring director. He was able to direct Dick Van Dyke, which is great. And um, yeah, we have a new one called Super Sex, another comedy that um, stars Ed Asner and Kevin Nealon, Elizabeth Perkins, and Ruby Modine. Yeah, Ruby Modine is Matthew's daughter, who is a, when we made this film, was really just starting out as an actress. But since since this movie was completed, she has gone on to become a regular on the Showtime series Shameless and also star in the um, Blumhouse horror film Happy Death Day. She was um, one of the main characters in that. So she's, her career is starting to, to really take off now. And uh, all thanks to Super Sex. No. <laughs> um, it, it's, a, it's a fun short. It, it gets a good laugh. We played it in a number of film festivals and we're... Um, we're still working on, you know, getting it out in as many ways as possible, but it is currently available as part of a short film compilation that's available on Amazon and iTunes. So, um, I think it's called, um, no ordinary love is the, uh, is the name of the compilation. So, uh, people can check that out there. But yeah, so that's um, that's kind of where things just sort of expanded. And since the shorts, we've gone on to do some features. We've done some animated films with um, Bill Plimpton, who's an Oscar-nominated animator. We've also done a documentary called The Brainwashing of My Dad that we've produced together. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're developing some other projects. We have some feature projects that um, Matthew would like to direct, but... As I'm sure you know, it's very hard to find the money and the funding to to make these types of sort of low-budget feature films. It's, it's much easier, really, to get the money together for a short film than uh, a feature. It's just people don't really want to take a chance on, on uh, sort of an unproven concept. For some reason, if the budget is between one and five million, no one wants to touch it. You can raise under a million pretty easily, but if it's between one and five, it's it's virtually impossible. It's easier actually to raise ten to twenty million <laughs> for a movie than wow. something under a, under five. It's just this weird kind of uh, I don't know. It, it it's a it's a it's a place within independent films where people feel like it's not enough to make it great, I guess. But it's it's too much to take a chance on. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> If I knew, I would figure out a solution to it. Or just ask for more money. You know, yeah, it's exactly. only two, it's a two million dollar film, but we're going to ask for ten because that's right. what gets the money, right? Exactly. <laughs> I recently right. watched your. I think it was your credited. It was your first short, Guilt. 
um, I, I, and you know what? As as an aspiring filmmaker, I mean, I'm I'm hoping that I will get to a point in my life where I look back on my first short films like I'm doing now and go, oh gosh, I can't believe that still was around yeah. because because right now I'm very proud of those and I, and I feel like there's with any film that you produce, direct, uh, have a have a footprint on. Yeah. You're gonna. There's a sense of love that goes into that, and I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoy. Uh, we've recently, Aaron and I have recently walked through some of the Oscar-nominated animated shorts, and we're talking offline about three of the five are very abnormal. They're not yeah. your straightforward things, and we actually appreciate those because, to me, I think animation of the last probably 20 years, uh, 30 years with The Simpsons, Hank, uh, King of the Hill, these uh, it, stuff on Cartoon Network. They've given creators an opportunity to tell their stories in a medium that is, I won't say more accessible because obviously not all cartoons are great for all people. Yeah. But I was going to ask you with regards to, did you animate that? Was that your? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was that was a college project that I did entirely by myself. Every, every except for the music, I had somebody help me. But I even helped compose the music. Um, it, it was one of those college projects where I had a semester to make an animated short film, and I just did everything myself. Yeah. And I put it online really because a couple people were asking just to see see it. Uh, just I put it up on Vimeo, and um, you know, I, I obviously it's super low budget and student made. It's it's not a good film, but. It, it's where I started kind of learning filmmaking and that's what people wanted to see it for to kind of see where um, where those first sort of baby steps came from right so, and, and when I look at it I mean there's there's a big idea embedded in the simple animated short and I thought right. that's you mentioned how short films give you an opportunity to not be edited by a big studio yeah. that you can tell your own stories we've um, we've become real big fans of Neil Blomkamp's Studio Oats yeah. precisely for those reasons and that it's where I think his ideas live the most, uh, the most free. And yeah. um, do you, uh, with that freedom, do you guys find that you want to, you have a lot more ideas that you can put into a short film uh, avenue or, uh, or would you ever consider doing maybe a, a TV series? Cause that's, that's more long form storytelling. I, I imagine that producing that is probably, a headache times 12 than producing a feature film because you're telling yeah. a, a longer type of thing. Uh, but I would think with, you know, the world we live in with Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and these original series that give, that give creators a, a length of time to say, Hey, you can tell your first season in 12 episodes. Uh, have you ever thought about venturing into television? Well, there's a, there is actually a project that Matthew is um, developing right now that if, it's sort of like a proof of concept right now, but if it comes together, it would be something potentially, you know, that could be on Discovery Channel or, um, you know, the Science Channel. There, there are a lot of it's. It's it sort of it has a documentary element to it. I can't really say anything more than that, but um, it, yeah, that would be something that if it if we can find somebody <laughs> to to sort of buy into this idea um that would be something uh, we would probably work on together and develop and uh we just need uh somebody to to write a check <laughs> for it and say here you go make it um yeah so we'll see what happens with that but that that would be great i think it would be um like i said a lot of what we've been doing independently are just these 
projects that we either develop ourselves, they're sort of homegrown, or we meet with somebody or talk with a friend or somebody that's developed working on a project that we think is really important. And so we offer to come on board as producers and, and help them to sort of get their film finished or, or produced more professionally. And that's sort of how we became involved with this film, The Brainwashing of My Dad. It's, a, it's actually a film that, a documentary that this woman, Jen Senko, was um, raising funds for on, on Kickstarter. And we saw um, her, her campaign and through a mutual friend, we actually knew her. So we, we really believed in what she was trying to do. It was a story about how her father became really, um, just the, he became really brainwashed is, is the term we use, but obsessed with, with, the, with right-wing media outlets, uh, Rush Limbaugh, um, radio, talk radio, things like that. And, um, and he just sort of started to change and, and not be the same dad she once knew. And so over time it got worse. And so she decided to make a film that kind of explored like what, what was happening, what happened to him and how, how have all of his beliefs changed over the, uh, as he got older as a result of the media. And it was important to us to make sure that we were telling both sides of the media was that this can happen on either end of the spectrum that anybody that gets too obsessed with one point of view becomes, um, you know, sort of a little too radical in their thinking because they're not allowing another perspective in. You know, they're only letting one uh, one voice or one um, point of view into their brain. So their brain becomes starts to believe only that that information, and they think everything else is a lie or is is false. So it was an important film for Matthew and I from that point of view and so we offered to assist and matthew of course helped narrate the movie uh we produced with him and with with jen and helped that film get distribution it's now on hulu and amazon prime and lots and lots of people are seeing it as a result and i don't know if she would have had the means to do that you know matthew and i have certain connections and ways to to help that i think we were able to bring to the table to get to without really interfering though this is a film that she really made herself and we really just sort of tried to support her as best as we could without sort of trying to change what she was doing that's awesome well this is this is all such great information um really appreciate you gosh i mean you're so you've been so candid and and very detailed it's incredible so you've got kind of like the same memory apparently as Kubrick's assistant does, because you're able to like recall all of this stuff. I, I, I'm telling you, I would not be able to do that. I can't remember what Patrick and I podcasted about three weeks ago. Um, but we also have two kind of personal uh, questions related to our specific show and our format here that we thought we would ask you. And sure. so if you don't mind, yeah, we wanted to first get your opinion. What is the movie that you have most emotionally responded to? Because here at Feelin' Film, we really kind of focus in on the emotional aspects of the movies that we watch and how we respond to them, which is partially why Full Metal Jacket is so high on our list because it definitely evokes a, a visceral response. So what for you would you go to and say is an emotionally moving film of some some, some emotion? Yeah, there's a lot. Um, one thing I was thinking about a lot when... I was 
thinking about this was that for me, almost every movie that really emotionally gets me, it has incredible music. I get sort of chills. They, the scores somehow do something to enhance the drama. And yeah, there's lots of great scores out there, but some movies just, just get it right. The score really takes it to a whole nother level. Um, and one movie that really always gets me is The Shawshank Redemption. It's just such a uh, powerful movie for me. And that the music at the end, it's just like that scene where Morgan Freeman is trying to find Andy. You know, he's, he's traveling to, to meet up with Andy. It's just, it gets me every time. It's just so powerful. And then the, the score just, it just elevates it to a whole other level. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a movie I've seen many times. Uh, the first viewing I saw, I, pro I never saw it in the theater. I saw it on VHS <laughs> in the mid-90s. And I just remember like being totally drawn into this film, like forgetting I was watching a movie. It, it, I, I remember I used to, the first film critic I used to really read a lot was uh, Roger Eber. And he used to say that films... Um, Films, really, truly great films can create sort of an outer body experience where you forget you're watching a movie, where you sort of get completely um, immersed in the film and you're taken either back in time or out into space or whatever it might be. And, um, you know, that this film somehow did that to me. It truly transported me. And it's it's a hard movie to watch at times. It's, a, you know, it's it's, it's violent and and and. You know who wants to go to prison? You know, but it's it's somehow the 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 fact that he was able to sort of keep his 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 calm and and keep his like his intellect was always there. He was always planning. It was always just that it's just one of those moments that the big reveal when you see the hole in the wall. It's just such a powerful moment, and um, just to see that he he never kind of gave up hope. You know, he always had this this master plan um, at, you know, in the back of his mind that he was, he was moving towards no matter how many decades it took to, to fully realize. But, um, but yeah, there's so many films. I mean, thinking about like feeling there's for me, a lot of, a lot of films have moments, just like little, little moments that for me make me realize why I love movies so much, you know, even if the movie as a whole wasn't great. Sometimes there's just that moment in a film that, that just transports me. And, um, yeah, I, uh, you know, Rudy is another movie that I find it really emotionally gets me every time. <laughs> um, and, uh, there's a moment, there's one moment I always tell my friends and I've told people this for years, one moment in, uh, the empire strikes back, which to me sums up, what's so great about star Wars. And it's this little quiet moment when in the beginning of the film, when Luke and his gunner Dak, I think is his name, get in the, uh, in the ship and Luke like asks his, the gunner something. And he says, right now I feel like I could take on the whole empire myself. And there's like this great little music cue there where you hear the star Wars theme. And then Luke says, I, I know what you mean. And like, that's, that's that sense of hope and, and like anything's possible that I think that's what star Wars did for so many people growing up. It was like this sense of like 
the future is anything we want it to be. Anything's possible. We can all be heroes. We can all do, you know, great things. And um, yeah, I just think it's uh, those little moments are are what emotionally charge me to want to to hopefully one day make movies or make content that you know inspire or or make other future um, generations just as you know excited about movies as as I. I was watching well, that. Yeah. And that, that kind of leads us to our next question about you know, your yeah. role as a filmmaker. And I love the fact that you said you wanted to get into movies in any way, shape or form. You mentioned being an illustrator at first and then kind of getting you know, branching off and, and now you're producing and, and directing and, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so in your storytelling, is there a particular genre that you resonate with the most that you say, OK, if I'm going to tell this story, I, mean, I, I know that certain stories are sort of gravitated towards certain genres, but is there a particular genre that you would like to work in that enhances your storytelling or gets people connected to your films in the way that you're describing things like Shawshank, Rudy, and Star Wars? Yeah. Um, well, I love animation. I truly do. I've talked about this at length before on uh, on other podcasts. Uh, I, I think there's a big... Um, problem with animation in in the United States in that it's still wholly geared towards family friendly children you know you know family audiences and again there's nothing wrong I love a lot of the Pixar films they're they're beautifully made I thought Coco was fantastic um, but I think animation has such great potential to be a much greater um, storytelling um, medium for for adults and and I, and by that I don't mean you know anything that's you know x rated or anything I just mean something films that are just real films you know for anybody for any age regardless of what you know the the subject matter that they could they could appeal to people of all or any ages and uh, I just think there have been so many attempts with so many filmmakers over the years to do this to to bring more adult um, focus films in, in 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 through animation, but they've never really caught on, uh, or haven't made the money necessary to kind of make that seem viable. Uh, obviously, in other countries, you know, in Japan, in France, and other parts of the world, you have tons of beautifully made, hand drawn films for more adult audiences that do make their way over here. But I think it's something that we're still um, missing in the U.S. As I mentioned, I, I have worked with Bill Plimpton. He makes independent, uh, more adult-themed animated films. They're more comical, mostly. Um, but yeah, I would love to to one day, perhaps even direct a, a feature animated film that uh, is a story that can only be told through animation. I think that's one key to to animation that's really important is that it should only be uh, something you can't film with a camera, you know, and there is a big, um, it, nowadays so much animation is incorporated into live action films that you don't even know it's animation because it's so photorealistic, but it is animation. But I'm talking more about truly, you know, hand-drawn traditional animation, not computer animation. That's something I've always had a passion for. As I said, I like to draw, as an illustrator, I first started learning animation by drawing on, on paper. So for me, it, it would be uh, something I would love to one day tackle. I don't know how that's ever going to happen, but um, 
you know, it's it's something sort of on the the back in the back of my mind that I would love to see um, come to life someday. Yeah, that's an interesting sausage. motive. Go ahead. I was going to say sausage party too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's definitely something that probably can't be done live action. You know, it'd be hard yeah, to, to get it. Yeah, <laughs> but but I like the fact that you see animation as a means to kind of expand the lens of creative storytelling and to use that that challenge of saying, what can we do that we don't have to have a or that we don't use a camera for? Can we can we put constraints on ourselves as creators to be able to say, what can we do in the world of animation that we can't do? So right. I, I'm I always the more that I that I've gotten exposed to the animated shorts, particularly in the Oscars, but even recently dropping into anime, which is not a, a huge favorite genre of mine, I'm appreciating more of what it means to not only bring something to life visually, but to direct that. You know, if I'm thinking about how would I direct this, right? That's probably a whole conversation in and of itself. Like, how would you direct a, you know, how would you direct an animated film? Because you're not you're directing voice actors, but how do you direct the actual like artists and things like that? And it's no surprise to me that even the most simple animated features take years to uh, to right. produce because of all those different kinds of challenges. But when you see the end result, it's it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, I agree, and uh, I, I I see kind of animation directing a lot like uh, producing, really, in that you're sort of assembling an incredible team of people and it's a lot in ways like your project managing all these different departments and people and sort of making sure everybody's doing their job but also making sure you have the right people doing it and just sort of making sure there's good communication and um and a clear understanding of you know the overall goal of the project and what mm -hmm. we're what's trying to be achieved um it's just i think you mentioned earlier you know it's it's very unclear what a producer does, and I think that's true. I think every producer is different in terms of what they do, and how they, uh, what responsibilities they take on. Um, I don't even know if I'm not a producer in a traditional sense. I, I really don't think I am. I, I think I'm more of a jack of all trades. I sort of know a little bit about everything. So, um, but producing is sort of being a producer is the place where you can do a little bit of everything. You can be involved in everything. Whereas if you're just going to be, you know, a director of photography, well, that's really, you got to focus, you got to learn your lenses and your and lighting. You got, that's your, that's your job. And you have to get, you have to be a master at it. And because I have an interest that sort of goes outside of just one area, producing is kind of the best place, producing or directing, but um, directors tend to be, you know, well, there's two kinds of directors. Obviously, there are directors that are really about directing actors, um, and those, you know, are the kind that tend to come from stage and um, where that's their goal is to get great performances out of their performers. And then you have directors who are more, you know, technical, and they they more again understand a lot about a lot of different things, but they're not so focused on the performers. <laughs> I can think of one person, <laughs> in Michael, <particular>. Bay. <laughs> Michael Bay. Michael uh, Bay. That's a Patrick's lot. favorite director. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is it opposite day? I don't think it is. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I only say that because I feel like there's uh, the lines can blur, and mm -hmm. in terms of responsibilities, and and if people out there are listening and they want to become a director or want to become a producer, 
Um, it's really what you, whatever you make of it, especially if you go down a more independent route, because as an independent filmmaker, you really do need to, to understand every, uh, every role in the filmmaking process to a certain extent, because if you don't, you're not going to know how to find the right people and how to work with them and speak their language and, and get the best work out of them. So a lot of people don't want to have to learn all that. Right. <laughs> and then there are people that um, know every role inside. There are people like, like a James Cameron who probably in many cases knows every role on his crew in sometimes in some ways better than they do, you know, and that's why everyone hates him, you know, because he's a little too good in many ways at the technical side of things. He, Mm -hmm. if he just directed and just focused on directing, he might not have so many horror stories about him. (laughs) But yeah, I I would think when it comes to the way you describe producing, it sounds like it's, it's someone who um, is kind of the glue that holds a lot of the, the pieces and parts together and, and kind of the, the, the thread of all that. So, yeah. because I'm like Aaron, I mean, I, I don't know what it means to produce. Uh, the guys that I've worked with on my short films, they get the producing credit. I'm like, Oh, okay. I guess. Yeah. They are the producer because they <laughs> produced the film, but didn't we all do that? I guess. Yeah. But, I mean, and, and so, yeah, it, it can be very vague, but at the same time, it seems like it's more of the connective tissue when you're working on a project that yeah. has an understanding of, of everything going on. Definitely. Yeah. I agree. Well, Adam, thank you so much for being on. This was fantastic. I know that I speak for Aaron when I say we have had a blast talking with you and and talking through the uh, the the book, the the uh, appumentary, as you guys have coined, <laughs> and um and it's just been great to to get to know you a little bit more and and get to see kind of where your creative juices come from, your relationship with Matthew, and all that. So we appreciate you being on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I hope I haven't bored anybody or rambled on too much. Uh, I, uh, but I, I, as you said, I have a good memory and <laughs> sometimes the memories just start pouring out. So, uh, I hope it is uh, entertaining or in some way informative for any, everybody listening. Well, at the very least we have a recording so that when you create this diary diary in 25 yes. years, this, <laughs> you can use this as source material and we can get a little bit of credit in there and that'd be good. That's so. right. Yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for being on, Adam. Oh, anytime. I'm happy to be here. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Up next is our conversation with Matthew Modine. Here we get a chance to talk more in depth about his experiences working on Full Metal Jacket and his relationship with Stanley Kubrick specifically. It's a really, really insightful conversation, and we hope you guys get as much out of it as we did. So uh, the reason we wanted to have you on, I guess, is I don't know what all Adam told you, but uh, we had covered Full Metal Jacket as part of a series we did in January where we went through four different Kubrick films in a row, and Full Metal Jacket was the last one. It's always been a favorite of mine. Patrick had not seen it, so it was his first viewing ever. He made it to 38. uh, No, you were 39 when you watched it, right? Yep, just turned 39. Your birthday. Yeah. So he made it to 39 without seeing Full Metal Jacket, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> but um yeah so we 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 watched it and we just kind of both fell in love with it all over again and that led me to discovering your awesome uh FMJ diary. And so I I mean we talked to Adam a ton about this and my goodness the guy's memory is amazing first of all. <laughs> I think I think you made a great choice of a producer because 
Um, he did not forget anything. It felt like it was just photogenic. Um, but we wanted to know kind of what, from your perspective, how did, how did you get to the point where that became a thing you wanted to do so many years later? Um, after, you know, after the actual experience of going through the filming was done, uh, he mentioned that you had, you know, kept all this stuff just in case, but what made you, I guess, 20 years later decide it was something you wanted to put into this new format and put out there for the world? Well, while I was filming uh, and I was taking those photographs with that Rolleiflex medium format, two and a quarter by two and a quarter inch format camera, um, I was making prints. I was giving them to, you know, the extras that were in the photographs. I was giving them to the actors and I was giving them to Stanley Kubrick. Um, because, I mean, a friend of mine had given me the role of Flex camera as a way of kind of breaking the ice and starting a friendship with Stanley Kubrick. He said that if you knew how to use this camera, um, it, it might be a great way to become friendly with him because of his photographic background. So I began teaching myself to use the camera and really fell in love with that format, that the size of the negative, the square, and also the way that people behave in front of a Rolleiflex is very different than the way people behave in front of a 35 millimeter camera. So um, I, I, I really fell in love with photography and, and the process and um, what happens to, to, to you as a person when you, when you uh, get behind the camera. That they often say uh, that, that, that war correspondents, you know, when they're taking photographs, that they, they think that when they put the camera in front of their face that they are protected from the violence around them, that somehow it's this invisible wall that gets created by, by, uh, by viewing the world through, through the lens. And I have to say that there's, there's some truth to that. And, and the experience of taking photographs on Stanley Kubrick's set, set which was uh, unprecedented, you know, him giving me that kind of permission to take photographs on the set was unheard of uh, in, in the past with his with his uh, with his his process, the secrecy of his film sets. So um, then, to my amazement, when I would give Stanley Kubrick one of those photographs that that, that I printed, um, his critique of them and his uh, he was impressed by my photography, and that was great, very flattering. And so I had all these photographs, uh, and I always wanted to do something with them but I didn't really know what, and I didn't know how I would present them. Um, and then I met a book publisher and he was really impressed with the books and wanted to publish the, the photographs. And he said uh, that I'm going to have to tell a story about the photographs, you know, give some background to, the, to them. And I said, well, you know, while I was making the film, I kept a diary as a journalist, you know, I was, I was sitting on the set and, and Stanley would say something, something would happen, and I'd keep a journal of what was what was being said or what was happening on the set. And and then there was also a personal diary that I kept about what was happening in my life because I'd just gotten married, my son was being born, uh, Chernobyl was happening, my manager died, my father had a heart attack. There was lots of things. So I was I was my grandmother had taught me as a young boy to keep a journal as a way of uh, uh, coming to peace with your thoughts that if you if you externalize things that are going on inside of your mind 
by putting them on paper. Um, sometimes it has a way of sorting them out and helping you to understand your emotions and your and your thoughts. So, um, so when the uh, Rug, Rugged Land was the name of the publisher, when when they decided that they would print these photo, I mean, publish these photographs, I told them about my diary, and they said, "Terrific! How would you feel about transcribing the diary?" And I said, yeah, okay. I said, there'll probably be some things that I'll want to take out because I don't want to uh, incriminate people or, or hurt people's feelings by some of the things that I wrote down. And I published it. I mean, it's, I, and I, and I published it, but I, um, I began transcribing it. And what I realized was that that was the real gold of, of, the, of this experience was this young person, this 25-year-old boy who went off to work with this arguable genius uh, and and what what that was like that this was an opportunity for all those people that were curious about Stanley Kubrick to have a have a peek inside of of what it was like to to be on his film set. That's awesome. That was um, a really long. That was a really really long explanation. No, it's good. I, I mean, I, I'm just I'm just gonna sit back and, and listen. I don't even think I need to to talk or ask any more questions. That's pretty fantastic. I, I was gonna ask. You mentioned that the the photography was something that you picked up for the film and, and for this this endeavor. Is that something that you've kept uh, kept up with? Have you continued to do that? I know being an actor, you have a lot going on with 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 your your acting life and as well as family. But uh, is that is that a hobby or something that you continue to do even after uh, your days on Full Metal Jacket? Do you continue to do that? Yes, I don't do it on film sets so much because uh, you know, the experience of working on, on full metal jacket was almost two years, you know, it was 20 months right. and at 21 months. And, um, so there was time on Stanley's set that you don't normally have, especially today where movies are made in 12 days and 25 days. And, you know, it, it, so doing something like taking photographs on the set is the, uh, mean it would it would implicate that I wasn't fully involved in my job as an actor. You have to really focus and be uh, you know really plugged into what you're doing when you're when you're making a film in in a, a compressed period of time. Um, it's a criticism that I have of a lot of movies that get made today. They're they're no longer making films; they're shooting schedules. Yeah, it seems like. It's kind of a mirroring of the world in general, right? And there's there's one thing that you actually said in the book that kind of speaks to that, I think. You said that you learned a sense of time. You had a better understanding of time and how to slow down and be in the moment and where you are. Have you kind of been able to incorporate that in your work after FMJ? Um, yes, yeah, so I think that, that I mentioned what you just did, you just spoke about in the epilogue, right? And the, the things that I learned from this experience. Um, yeah, I mean, and I think that, you know, given this period of my life, this chapter in my life that I'm living right now, um, I have a greater understanding of, of time. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm closer to the age that Stanley was when he directed the film so I have an appreciation of, of, of who he was uh, and his understanding of the world just by how much time I've spent on this planet. Um, I think, I don't know, what was Stanley? Maybe 60-something when, when we made Full Metal Jacket. Um, 
so he's a little bit older than me. But yeah, you, I have a, a greater understanding. You know, when people say that there's only this moment, uh, I made a film called Eke Pirate uh, when, while I was making uh, Cutthroat Island. I used their film sets and, and props and, and, and things and made a, a beautiful story about a boy who gets kidnapped and taken on board a pirate ship and learns to accept that his life is never going to be what he imagined it was now that he's been kidnapped and taken on the ship. Um, his life would never be the same. And he learns to accept that. Um, but acceptance and, and knowledge of the world around you is, is something that uh, comes to us at different stages and different ages in our lives. Um, and, and at this moment in my life now, I, I, I have a, an appreciation and an understanding of life like I've never had before. And, and I know, like those old ancient religions spoken about, that there is only this moment. Um, and and I, I wrote about it in Eke Pirate. It was a, I was kind of making a joke about the book that Frederick Nietzsche had written called uh, Eke Homo, Behold the Man. That they, they said it was kind of a joke that the Romans had put the feet of Jesus Christ on the cross, that it, it was Eke Homo, Behold the Man, King of the Jews. That, that there he was, here's your, here's your very powerful uh, spiritual leader, and look, he's, he's nailed to a cross, so he's not so powerful, right? The kind of the humor of, uh, of, of nailing the sign to the cross, behold the man. Well, one of the things that, that, that I gleaned from your, from your book was that the diary wasn't just about Full Metal Jacket, and First of all, I love the fact that it's told in sort of a radio drama style. It's not just you narrating. It's you participating in the voices and, and really not just telling the story, but giving us as an audience a chance to get in your head. And uh, one of the things yeah. we asked Adam was if that was intentional for you to voice all the characters. I put characters in quotes, but everyone that, that you had uh, documented dialogue with and, and, and I love the fact that it, it feels very immersive. I feel like I'm, as someone listening, I'm in the world that, that you're kind of painting for us. The glimpse that we get into not only your life on the film set, uh, but also your relationship with, with Stanley Kubrick. If you had the opportunity to, to document that again or to, uh, to recreate an event like that where you're able to capture a moment like that on uh, maybe not a film set, but maybe a significant season of your life leading up to something or a journey that you're on. Would that be something you would ever want to document again? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I think it, it gets harder writing a diary. I think as you get older, um, I think when we're, when we're younger, it, it you know, things are, you know, are more profound. You know, you, you see something, you discover something, somebody says something and everything is, has importance and value. And, um, as, as I've gotten older, I'm, you know, they're, they're, they're just things, you know, they, they, they don't have the impact that they did when, when I was younger. Um, I, I suppose it's like sensitivity, you know, that, that, that first kiss that you have, the first time that you touch 
a girl's hand when you reach across and she doesn't take her hand away from you. It's profound, you know, that, that you know, that the warmth of her hand in yours, um, you know, the, the touch of her leg, you know, leaning against yours, all, all that stuff has such a heightened sense, sensuality when, when we're young. And as, as we get older, um, it, 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 it's, it's different. It's, it's important, but it's, it's different. The moments are different. So as far as keeping a diary today, uh, um, I, I still write things down. I still keep track of, of, of certain things, but um, it, it, not, it's, it, it doesn't have the, the value that it did when I was younger. Yeah, totally. So I'm going to segue using your, your word sensuality there to ask you this question about um, Full Metal Jacket. I don't, I don't feel like you answered this in the diary itself, but you give us that awesome information about the sex scene that never was and how oh, yeah. know, it was filmed and all of this. So I, I got to know, how do you feel about the choice to remove it? Have you come to grips with that? Do you wish it was in there or do you think that the correct editing choice was made. Um, I've spoken to Leon Vitale, Stanley's uh, assistant, you know, for so many years. He was Lord Bullington and, and uh, Barry Lyndon. And um, he worked with, he, well, he cast The Shining. He found Danny, um, the little boy, uh, and, and coached him through that film. And, uh, you know, he, he, was, he was Stanley's closest confidant for, I don't know, more than 30 years. Um, and he supervised all of the, the, the remastering of the, of the films to Blu-ray. And he's just a genius, uh, Leon Vitale, to put it simply. Um, but we talked about that scene, and he said it was a beautiful scene. It was really good. It was really funny. Uh, he said, but it just, at that part, at that stage of the film, I think Stanley... And this is something that you get from the diary as well, the Full Metal Jacket diary, is that Stanley created an environment for him to be able to find his film, to discover what his film was, you know, and and that meant sometimes shooting scenes that he, uh, he thought would be appropriate for the film um, while he was searching for the tone. When when we began. I started to think that that we were making something that was closer to um, Doctor Strangelove or or Mike Nichols' movie um, Catch Twenty Two, that there was some sardonic humor and and dark humor that the that the that the film would be peppered with, and um, that was all cut for. There's another 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 scene where I get made into a sergeant and it was, I'm, I'm talking to this guy uh, played by an actor named Tony Spiridakis. Uh, he's playing Monopoly and he gives me orders to go to uh, uh, the city of Huey, which was a death sentence because it was, uh, you know, after the, the Tet Offensive, the city of Huey fell pretty hard and a lot of Americans were killed there. And so he, he was forcing me to go to Huey to do a story and that's where I meet up with the Lustog squad with Arliss Howard from, from my, uh, my boot camp. Uh, and, but in that scene, uh, it was, it was darkly funny. It was, it, it was more like catch 22 or, 
or you can't fight in here. This is the war room kind of stuff from Dr. Strangelove. And, and, uh, you know, that, that scene was cut from the film as well. And I, I think that me having sex with the prostitute had that kind of tone where by ending the scene with a, with a lifting dialogue from dark victory with Betty Davis and who was it? Claude Rains, I think. Uh, my darling, we have the moon. Don't let's ask for the stars. Uh, it's, it was, it was, it was, it was humorous. You know, that prostitute that we meet on the street in the, in the first scene in Vietnam and having sex with her and then lighting two cigarettes and saying that it seemed like it was a kind of funny, you know, appropriately funny and weird scene, but that was in the first months of filming that we shot that. Um, so anyhow, that, that's why it's not in the movie. I, I wish I could have seen it. And Stanley, t- I, I don't know if I wrote this in the diary. I don't think so. Stanley said that he cut the scene from the film because the washcloth that I asked her to have on my back, because it was the early days of, of uh, the AIDS epidemic, and nobody knew, knew how it was being spread. You know, it could be spread, you know, at that time, we thought from door handles, you know, from doorknobs. Uh, from from mosquitoes even um, that nobody was quite sure how HIV was being spread and so to have this this woman be naked on my back with her vagina essentially on my ass uh, my naked ass it was it was kind of scary it was a scary a scary thing to <laughs> it sounds so silly but uh, I asked if I could have a washcloth on my between her vagina and my ass and and Stanley you know as he as I say in the diary he was like I don't want to have that this is is disgusting I don't want to have this conversation and he said to me when when uh, he called me from from London when I was back in New York um, he said he cut the scene from the film because when he watched it all he could see was the washcloth and he and he and he thought how considerate it was for her you know, in, in the context of the film that you just had sex with this woman and had an orgasm and she put a washcloth to stop my, from leaking down my back. That was, that was what he said. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And based on what, on, on your diary, that sounds like typical Stanley Kubrick, just very, very blunt, very, uh, just very terse when it comes to just matter of fact in his, in his conversations. Something that that I pulled away from from watching the film, uh, that being my first time, is the jarring nature of these two halves. Uh, we on our show we we do a a one word takeaway for films, and I I felt like I was able to give two one word takeaways because I felt like I was watching, you know, two distinctly different stories being told. And then when I find out that the the Vietnam sequence was filmed first, and then boot camp was filmed second, as an actor, did that um, how did you respond to that? Was that weird for you? Was it weird to have a a two half a movie of two halves, or uh, were you able to adapt to having a sort of a chapter two, chapter three of of this of this film that that Kubrick was was putting together? Was that weird for you going in as an actor, or did it feel uh, did it feel fascinating? What what was your response to that? Well, first. Um... I know it feels like there's two two 
halves to the film because that, the film's actually got three acts. There's the boot camp, and then it goes up to uh, the Tet Offensive when the the base, the military base, is attacked, and then it then it's after the film fades to to black, and then begins the third chapter of the film. Is that there 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 are there are three distinct uh, portions in the, in the film, um, but obviously, it, it, but the first act is so different than the rest of the film. I can understand people thinking that that uh, it, it was. It, I, I, I can understand people having that impression because it's so distinct. Um, and, and Lee Ermey and Vincent D'Onofrio are so terrific in that first that first act. Um, but you know, at that stage of my career, I'd already worked on six or seven films, and it was quite normal to, for films to be shot out of order. You know, so what you have to do as an actor is uh, is uh, chart chart your character. You know, you have to you know what is my character's arc from where he begins to where he ends up. What is what is that arc? And uh, you know, at the beginning of the story, we see these young recruits. I, I think that we've been taught our whole life not not to hurt people, not to kill people, not to be violent, not to aim weapons at people. And when we dis, when we send children to uh, boot camp, or when people young people join uh, the military, uh, we have to erase that kind of behavior from their minds. Uh, that that you have to kill or be killed, you know, and to work together as a unit, not to to, to remove that individuality and make you work as a as a as a unit, as a group of as a platoon, as a as as a military force. And um, in order to to do that, you have to eradicate all of those kind of lessons that people have been taught in their lives and reprogram their minds. And the first act of the film uh, demonstrates how effectively that can be done, um, and and how some people become broken by that by that process. Um, in the case of Vincent D'Onofrio's Gomer Pyle, um, and then and then in the case of the Vietnam War, we had we had trained people to fight. A kind of war that was was not being fought in Vietnam. We were fighting guerrilla warfare, and Stanley Kubrick illustrates that perfectly by having us fighting uh, a young Vietnamese girl with a banana clip, AK-47, and some, you know, maybe a tube of rice that she's carrying around. That, that she doesn't have all the all the weaponry of a uh, of the United States military. And and they defeated us. You know it, that's the sad the sad truth of the uh, that most uh, that certainly the American government doesn't want to uh, admit is is that we had our asses handed to us by the Vietnamese. We had our asses handed to us by the North Koreans during during the Korean War. Um, that uh, I forget what the line is in the film about a well motivated you know a, a, a motivated soldier. Uh, can can do a lot more harm than a platoon of soldiers, but it's uh, you know I, the film speaks for itself. I, it's it's hard for me to say anything more profound than what the film says on its own. How did that work with the ending? I know you talked about in Full Metal Jacket Diary how 
um, you and Stanley kind of went through this whole big, I mean, it was fascinating to learn the, how the, you know, arrival of the ending came about. Um, but obviously that came after you had left the filming of the war part of the movie. So is that a typical thing on set where a lot of extra kind of footage is shot so that you have these options or was there any, was there any going back and filming again once the ending was dis- decided on? Because I know that originally it was going to have the... We were still shooting Vietnam when, when that happened, when that, oh, that confrontation okay. happened. Yeah, we were, we were still in Vietnam. There, there might have been, I don't remember exactly, there may have been, a, because at one point we started boot camp and we were shooting Vietnam because and I, and I, I had to wear a wig. Um, because my head had been shaved and we were still, we were still shooting the elements of the, the Vietnam. Uh, so I don't remember exactly, but I, I do know that we were still shooting Vietnam. Uh, and we, we had not gotten into the, uh, the, the only thing we shot on a, on a studio stage at Pinewood studios was, uh, the killing of the sniper that was on a stage at Pinewood studios. And we hadn't arrived there yet. Um, but yeah, we were, we were still shooting Vietnam when, when, when that, uh, that happened. And, and I've talked to Viet, uh, I mean, to, uh, Leon Vitale, I spoke to Michael Hare about, about that. And they say, they don't know. They don't know what Stanley thought about the ending of the film. I will say this, that, that Stanley Kubrick's daughter, Vivian said that when he was making 2001, a space odyssey, he didn't have an ending for the film. And here he was, you know, a much younger man under a tremendous amount of pressure, of financial pressure, because it was a tremendously expensive movie to produce, uh, that he didn't have an ending for 2001 A Space Odyssey. And he said that that's one of the most difficult things for an artist to, uh, to allow themselves the freedom of not knowing is that 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 the that in the process of creating art, you you don't have to know what the end result is going to be, but you like a painter or a musician that, that that's composing a song, that they, it will reveal itself. You know, when you sit down to write a song, you don't know how that song's going to end, or maybe you have an ending, but you don't know how it's going to start. But you, what you have to do is, is sit down at the piano and do it or sit at the easel and start painting. And, and it will reveal itself when it's time to put the paintbrush down and uh, put your name on it and say, I'm done. So, you know, Kubrick did talk about that with filmmaking, that why should it be any different? Why should, why should somebody ask me how many takes did it take to make them, to, you know, till I got it right? He said, what difference does it make? He said, would you ask that of, of Picasso? How many strokes in that, Pablo? You know, how many strokes in that painting? Or, or hey, Mozart, how many, uh, how, many, uh, how many notes in that song? You wouldn't do that, that that would be obscene. It'd be an obscene thing to ask an artist like that. Because, because the truth of it is, is that, it's, uh, that how long did it take you to, to create something? It took you it, to that point of in your life, every day of your life to create that it, Picasso may have been able to draw a picture in, in five minutes, he might've been able to paint one of those ceramic pots in an hour. But the truth of it is, is it took him his entire life to be able to sit down and paint it in an hour 
it took him his entire life to be able to do the drawing, the sketch in a few, in a few moments, in a few minutes. Right. Um, that's all that preparation up to that point in your life. And so, so when Stanley Kubrick asked me about the end of the film, he knew that there was something that he didn't like about the, the idea of private Joker dying, that, that, that was something that, yes, of course, young people go to war and young people die and it's tragic, but, but what, What's the bigger idea? What's more tragic than dying in war? The thing that's more tragic is going to war, seeing horrors of war, seeing mm-hmm. some kid blow his brains out in a bathroom, seeing him kill his drill instructor, having this kid that he knew from boot camp die in his arms, having to stand over a young Vietnamese girl who's bleeding to death and begging him to end her life and to give her mercy and, and kill her and shoot her. Because that's what Joker is going to have to carry in his mind for the rest of his life. That's the real horror of war is, is, is what we've exposed a young person to, that, 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 that the kind of uh, th- those horrors. And, and it's, it's no surprise to me that we have, you know, 20, 25 young kids who've come back from Iraq and Afghanistan that are taking their own lives that, uh, you know, because of the horrors that they've seen, the horrors that they've experienced. And, mm-hmm. and Stanley, maybe he, he couldn't, he, he, he couldn't articulate it. He, he couldn't explain why he didn't want Private Joker to die. And it was only until he heard me explain that and say those words that he knew now, now I know why I don't want Private Joker to die, because yes, that is the truth that to spend the rest of your life with those images, with that experience inside of your soul uh, is the true horror of war. Right. I wonder the, the artistry behind what Kubert does as a director. We've, we've talked about that on the show about how a lot of times he is more of a Picasso than a, I mean, he's a storyteller, but we see more artistry in him than I think we see in a lot of directors. And there's definitely inspiration in some of the directors that we've, fallen in love with the Chris Nolans out there. And early on in the book, you mentioned holding out for this project, at least indirectly that there were other roles that were coming to you. And as you mentioned before, I mean, you had just gotten married, your wife was pregnant. Was this the attraction to being a part of, of a film of his is to kind of experience that artistry uh, or were there other motives? Because I mean, you were definitely uh, this is something you wanted. So the the fact that uh, there's no doubt that you wanted to work with Stanley Kubrick, and I didn't know if, if if those were some of the reasons why was to be a part of this artistic journey that he goes on when he when he makes these films. Um, well, absolutely, yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to make an important film. I wanted to work with a with a a great storyteller, and I didn't I didn't know it was going to be Stanley Kubrick, but that was. I mean, that's, that's an aspiration that, that every uh, actor, well, not, maybe not every actor, but a, a lot of actors have is to work with, you always want to work with someone who's, who's better, who's smarter, who, who uh, is a you know, great storyteller. And, um, you know, I had, I had no idea that, that, that Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket would come through my mail slot with a, with a very humble note from him saying that my name is Stanley Kubrick. I'm a filmmaker. And I wonder if you'd be interested in participating in my project. 
I mean, it, this, it, it, it was, I mean, I don't, I, I can't, I don't know a lot of directors in Hollywood that, that have that kind of humility and they, they, you know, this, this credit that Stanley Kubrick used to put on his, well, that did put on his film, Stanley Kubrick's, the ownership of Full Metal Jacket, of Barry Lyndon, that that kind of ownership that, that, that so many filmmakers put on their films, it's, it's, uh, it's audacious and it's pretentious when, if they understood what it what what a Stanley Kubrick film is, and the and how every aspect of the process of making the film, from producing to the process of writing, to every aspect of the film, that to take that kind of ownership credit is is ridiculous uh, for for so many young directors that haven't. Uh, ex- distinct, distinguished themselves in the in this business to take that kind of credit is is ridiculous. It's a it's a ridiculous credit to take, it, especially because film is such a collaborative medium that's required to 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 make a good movie. It's it's stupid that they should take that kind of ownership credit. He's the only director that I've worked with. I've worked with some pretty amazing ones that uh and and i've worked with some really amazing ones that don't take that ownership credit yeah stanley's the only one that i say that i've worked with that deserves that that ownership credit um one of the last things i kind of wanted to ask about your fmj specific experience that really stuck out to me was this i this whole explanation of the bullet hits i was i was fascinated by that that conversation about the way that those worked as far as special effects back back in that time and so i'm curious i mean it feels like there was just almost no standards for safety some of the things you describe are scary in big way and i wondered you know you recently posted a photo of yourself on the set of this new movie backtrace that you're working on and i know you're you're doing a lot of stunts and you're working um, with probably some special effects there because you've got blood all over your face in this photograph how has that evolved over your career from what you saw with like the bullet hits and how those were created to where special effects are now in Hollywood? Well, now they don't even have to put bullet hits on, on your body. They just, they just like, I, I think walking dead, for instance, uh, it's all done digitally in, in after, after effects, you know, that, that they'll, somebody gets shot and they put a, a blood, explosion burst uh, all digitally I, I, I don't even think they put bullet hits on people's bodies anymore um, and so I mean from from where we started I mean it's it's such a funny story you know putting the bullet hits on the back of those young kids heads uh, a quarter load a half load a full load uh, you know, in the explosion, banging him against the back of the head. And it looked like I said, as I say, he looked like he got hit by a ball peen hammer in the head, he had a big egg on his head. Yeah, you, you, you just wouldn't do that today. Well, um, something else you mentioned that we're curious about is just your relationship with Vincent. Um, we know you, you started off as friends and that's kind of how you guys or how you got him the role. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, Vince and I met at an audition for private school, and we went to Central Park after because it was the Gulf and Western Building, uh, which is now Trump Tower on the corner of Columbus Circle in New York City. 
used to be the Gulf and Western building on Paramount. And they were, they were having auditions in there and we met and we went to Central Park and I think we smoked some grass and um, we were talking about the fact that I went to Stella Adler's and he was studying with a student from Lee Strasberg and, and Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler, you know, were, were founding members of the actors uh, studio uh, the group theater, I should say, not the actor's studio, the group theater. And, um, uh, and since they didn't, didn't like each other and had a different approach to acting, you know, was it something that you do through your imagination or is it something that you, uh, when you're playing a role that you have to find something from your past or, or create, create the character with some kind of, uh, actuality. And my teacher, Stella, worked from the imagination. Um, so if you were going to play a killer, you could go back in, in history and find dozens of people who have been killers, whether it was, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, all the way back to the Bible, you know, Cain killing his brother, Abel. Um, you know, you can you can find all kinds of examples of of things of people that you that you want to play in in history, and uh, and actually in in truth, genetically, since we we all know that we share the same DNA and that we're all technically brothers and sisters, uh, you can find that killer or that lover or that jokester in within you because it's part of your DNA. You just have to go searching for it. And uh, Vince's school was more of a, the approach that of a lot of people were slapping each other on the stage when they were doing scenes and spitting on each other. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was a different approach. Um, I, I don't like to call that method acting, but there's, there are people that, you know, would might interpret that as method acting. Um, uh, so yeah, we, we had a different approach to things. And so I, I got to London, I was working on the film and Stanley said he was really happy with the cast. Everybody, everything was working out well. And, uh, he just couldn't find someone to play Gomer Pyle. He hadn't found someone to play that role. And I told him I knew somebody and I think that he'd be really terrific for the role. I said, he's not fat and he's not Southern but I'm sure he could gain some weight and do a Southern accent. And Stanley said, we'll have him audition. So I contacted him and he was like, no way. I said, no, 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 you don't have the role. You have to go through the process of auditioning. So this is what you got to do. And he did. And Stanley said, I looked at his videotape. He's really good. Do you think he'll gain the weight? Because Vince was a, a bouncer at that time at uh, Planet Hollywood. No, no, at Hard Rock Cafe. He was a bouncer. And uh, Vince went through that process of gaining weight and he had to continually audition while he was gaining weight. He gained 10 pounds and put himself on tape again, gained 10 more pounds and put himself on tape again. And long story short, he got the role. And as we got closer and closer to filming, now I've, I've, I've described the two different kind of acting styles that we have, me working from the imagination and him working from a place of, of uh, physicalizing uh, emotion let's say and as he got closer and closer to to the start because as they say i was filming vietnam and then we were going to film boot camp so he was he was in in london for about uh, more than a month 
maybe two months before before we got to boot camp. And uh, but as we got closer and closer to the time when he was going to have to go to work, he began to uh, drift away from from me and our friendship as he went deeper into portraying the role of of uh, Leonard. And um, you know, that as we we got deeper into it. So all of those scenes where I'm trying to teach him how to clean his rifle or make his bed or, or to square himself away, um, we were really not friendly with each other. We, we really, really did not like each other. So in a way, I mean, I think it's good because it worked for the scenes. But, uh, you know, I, I think we both wanted to take our rifles and smash them across each other's heads. As I say, I think it, I think it works for the scenes. It does. And that was kind of where I was going with this is have you guys reconnected after that? Did it was that all very much something that was self-contained on the set and then dissipated and your friendship has been able to to go on the way it was? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we've uh, we've never discussed it. We've uh, there's been a couple of times, like maybe two times that we've had uh, discussions about the film. We had one recently on the 30th anniversary. They had a screening at the Egyptian theater in Los Angeles in Hollywood and Leon Vitali, who I mentioned that was Stanley's assistant uh, for all those years was there. And, and uh, you know, we're quite, I'm I'm an admirer of his work as he is of mine. And and it was nice to, uh, to spend time together and and talk about the film. We didn't really talk about uh, the animosity between the two of us, because it's quite uncomfortable, you know, but we, we both know what we went through and, and, uh, in the end it was in service to the film, you know, so it, it doesn't matter, you know, a momentary displeasure, uh, is for the, for, for the greater good, you know, as long as, as long as what you're doing is beneficial to the film and, and, uh, it, it's okay. It's okay. Although I would say that if you're going to slap somebody across the face, as Vincent was in the film by Lee Ermey, when he, when he forgets which is left from his right, and he slaps Vince across the face, he slaps him so hard, his hat spins around on his head, um, that, Lee, that, that Vince told Stanley and told Lee to just go ahead and hit him because he didn't, he, he'd seen me getting slapped and punched in the, in the barracks and uh, uh, and how long it would go on until it really looked like I'd been slapped across the face or punched in the gut. And uh, Vince said, I don't want to do that. Let's just get it over with. Just hit me across the face. And, and Lee says, you know, he asked Stanley, he says, he wants me to hit him across the face. And Stanley says, well, if he wants to do it, then let's do it. And, and they did it and, and it was done. I, I don't think that, maybe they did two or three takes and that was it. It, it sounds like full metal jacket as you describe it in the diary and in, in, in our conversation, the intensity of it, the commitment level uh, by yourself and, and Vincent and, and others obviously who were, who are part of that project. Would this be considered your, I don't want to use the word favorite because it's probably not the best, but is it the one that stands out to you as probably the most impactful to your acting career? Because yeah, you were fairly young when you when you did this, and obviously you've you've taken on a lot since then. 
uh, over the years. Uh, where does this stand as far as its impact on you as an actor? Does it sit in terms of being like in all of your acting? Is it something that you go back to when, when it comes to uh, preparing for other roles? Well, I can't compare this experience with any any of them just for the sheer amount of time that, that I was involved with the director. Um, the, the other closest relationships I have that were similar with or with Abel Ferrara. We did three films together and uh, Robert Altman, who I, who I worked with in one of my first films about Vietnam called Streamers and, and Shortcuts. And we did a play together uh, just before his death in London at the Old Vic Theater in London. Um, so I, I, I do have relationships that were long-term with a couple other directors, but no, nothing for as long and as intense as, as that one experience of working with, with Stanley Kubrick. And its impact is profound. You know, what, how many films from 30 years ago are as relevant today as they were when they were made? Uh, that, that continue to have an audience, that continue to be, be have a, a discussion like we're having right now. Um, it's it, it's it's pretty rare that 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 happens. So I'm grateful to have had this opportunity to work with Stanley Kubrick and on this uh, on this project. And I mean, I'm having a photo exhibition uh, right now at a, at a at a gallery in Santa Monica of. They're, they're presenting photographs that were presented at the, uh, the Los Angeles art show, the, the convention, the convention center downtown that had about 30,000 people come and pass by and, and look at photographs that I took, took on the, uh, on set. So, um, and, and there were discussions that we had about four discussions with, with big audiences of, of people that came to you know, hear, hear the stories behind the photographs. So yeah, if, if I'd done pictures like that on, on Vision Quest or Mrs. Ophel or Married to the Mob or even Christopher Nolan's movie, would there, would there, The Dark Knight Rises, would there be, would there be uh, a, a relevance to, to the conversation? Um, I think it's a testament to Stanley Kubrick's genius that we're, we're, we're here talking about him and his, his work, you know, that's, uh, there, I'll tell you, I'll quickly, I'll quickly tell you a story that, uh, that Arliss Howard, who played cowboy told me, he said, when we finished the, the last things that Stanley said, the con- last conversation they had together, Stanley said, I'll, uh, uh, he said, I'll see you later, Stanley. And Stanley said, okay, Arliss, I'll see you, see you later. He said, listen, you're going to miss me. And Arliss said, well, of course I'm going to miss you. I already miss you. He goes, no, no, you're going to miss me. You're going to be on a, on a film set working on somebody's film, and you're going to miss me. They're going to say, cut, we've got it, let's move on, and you're going to miss me because you're going to know that they didn't get it. And Arliss said to me, that there has not been one film that he's worked on where they've said, cut, we've got it, let's move on, that I haven't missed Stanley Kubrick. Because Stanley wouldn't walk away from a scene until he knew that he got it. That is awesome. Um, I, yeah, we, we get that impression from you, and, and it's great to kind of hear that and just know that you know, from your experiences firsthand that it is coming through in his art. 
I think, as for us as viewers. Uh, speaking of genius, you are so versatile. And that's one of the things that we love about your work the most is it's not just films that you're doing. You're working in short films with Adam specifically, um, but you've done TV shows, miniseries, all kinds of different kind of work. Um, very personal kind of documentary style short films too, like uh, the Jesus was a commie film. Do you have anything that is your like number one passion above all else? Or are, is, are all the different art form styles that you're involved in kind of just different pieces of you? Or how, how does that work for you? You know, do you, do you have something that you gravitate toward the most? I love storytelling. I mean, I mean the best job in the world is being an actor. And the, 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 the directing comes out of frustration of not being challenged as an actor. Um, you know, I, I the, you want to work on things that are that are challenging, and um, you know, the, I, there's there's not that many there's not that many opportunities, and um, you know, so out of that frustration of not being challenged as an actor, I I, I start to reach out to different kinds of ways to be able to express myself. Uh, whether that's writing uh, or or directing or both, um, uh, the, the photography is something that, that that I love because it's a, it's a, a different way of expressing my, myself or or painting. You know, I, I I still love to paint, although I don't do it as much as I I did in the past. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's. To, to be an artist and to be able to uh, express yourself and be appreciated, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, you understand the, the frustrations of people like Vincent van Gogh that, who wasn't able to sell a painting in his lifetime, you know, that, that his brother was an art dealer and was selling other people's art, but nobody would buy Vincent van Gogh's. And, and it, it wasn't until, you know, perhaps, I don't know, how many years after his death that, uh, uh, that he became appreciated. I think it was Picasso's fault that he said the, the Dutch are always mourning the death of, uh, of uh, who's the great Dutch painter. Um, I can't think of his name. He's the most famous Dutch painter. Well, he was, certainly. Uh, he was the, the master of light. Rembrandt? Rembrandt, thank you. That, that, that it was Picasso said, you know, the Dutch are always mourning the death of Rembrandt, and they don't understand the genius of Van Gogh. And that made people go, wait a minute, what's Picasso talking about? And they kind of re-looked at Vincent Van Gogh and went, oh my God, you know, it really is genius what Vincent Van Gogh was doing. And there was nobody that was painting like him before or after. And, and the, the, he... he shown the spotlight on, on his work. And um, Stanley Kubrick said that, you know, and I say this in the book, the longest line is never outside the best restaurant. Um, that, that, that there wasn't, I don't think really one of Stanley's films that wasn't uh, heavily criticized and then later on greatly appreciated that, that when 2001 A Space Odyssey was having its New York premiere, uh, several hundred people walked out of the theater they walked out of the theater. When when Barry Lyndon came out, 
it was pretty much uh, critically panned. Um, so, you know, even The Shining was, was considered like one of the worst horror movies ever made. And now it's considered one of the best. So um, the, 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 the being appreciated in your lifetime as an artist is, is, uh, is a difficult thing, you know. That's what's funny about the Academy Awards and the BAFTAs and all these award shows is that, that it's really a popularity contest. It's not, you know, I don't think Stanley Kubrick ever won an Academy Award. And I, maybe the Beatles never won a Grammy uh, in, when they were the Beatles, not, you know, not individually, but as the Beatles. It may have not ever, I'm not sure about that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure they never won a Grammy. Um, so there's a, you know, it's, it's very clicky popularity and, and awards and things like that, that the, the, what's often recognized and rewarded is what's splashy or what's, what's uh, socially relevant in that moment, but not necessarily the best film. I mean, as an example, I'll just say Raging Bull lost to ordinary people. Um, which was a charming movie directed by Robert Redford, you know, about family drama with Mary Tyler Moore and Donald Sutherland and Timothy Hutton, who I think also won an Academy Award. Um, but how, how often do you hear people talking about ordinary people and how frequently do you hear people talking about Raging Bull? It sounds like your approach to film, to television, to any kind of expressive art that, that you take part in is really about the maximizing, not just enjoyment, but the maximizing uh, expression of that. And whatever the result is, whether it's considered success or not, is less important to you as just the journey and the experience of being able to uh, participate in those things. Would that be an accurate statement or at least somewhere close? I think that's fair. I mean, it's also true that uh, I I don't always make the best choices. You know, sometimes... (laughs) Sometimes, you know, you just get out of frustration, you just want to work and and you need to make money to pay the mortgage. And, you know, I, I just did a, a film that Sylvester Stallone was was in and it was a, the, one of the most bizarre experiences of my life. Um, I, I, I have no idea that, how it will turn out, but <clears throat> this is what I do know is I worked as hard on that role as I did on Dr. Brenner in Stranger Things. You know, you, you bring your toolbox and you go to work and you do the best you can given the, the, the circumstances and the situation. Uh, and you hope for the best. You know, you hope that, 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 that the experience will be a positive one, that the people that you're working with uh, are, are artists and that are that are good, and this is what I've learned over the time is that that it only takes a few threads in a in a in a pair of nylons, you know, a woman's nylons, to uh, cause the whole stocking to come undone, you know, a snag, and it ruins the stocking. So I think that it's fair to say that filmmaking is is like a pair of ladies' nylons is that. It just takes a snag to 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 destroy the whole thing. So it's 
it, it takes that kind of precision and that kind of things that, that, that I think that Stanley Kubrick is unfairly criticized for that kind of care and concern to make sure that the, the bulbs and the theaters that are projecting his movies are, are, are working at the right luminosity. You know, that's not eccentricity. It's, it's concern and it's care because you want, to, you want your work to be seen in the best possible light. And, and uh, you know, that's why a lot of films today, you know, they don't even talk about them as, as movies. They say that they need content. When you hear people talking about Netflix or Hulu or they're, you know, they need content. And so it's just like, you know, you're, I'm not going to invite you over to my house and feed you content. I'm going to invite you over to my house and feed you a nice meal, something that it may not fill your gut, but you'll go away from the table going, wow, that was really delicious. I'd rather have that than have you walk away from the table with a full belly of McDonald's. We actually have some, so if you don't mind, I want to throw you a question that is kind of show specific. And this is, I don't know if Adam prepped you for this or not. So it might have to come off the top of your head, but because of our show's format, we really like to focus on our emotional takeaways from the films we watch. And so we were wondering if you had any particular films that really emotionally resonated with you. Like what would what are your go-to films that make you respond very strongly in some form or fashion? Not necessarily stuff you've worked on, but things that you love. Well, I just hosted Turner Classic Movies, and, and I, I had the pleasure of talking about a couple of them. A couple of them I wasn't able to to uh, to get on to Turner Classic Movies. One of them was Mad, 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 Mad World, which is just one of the most funny movies I've ever seen. It's just so smart with so many great performances of the best comedians of that of that time period. Um, but one of the most profound movies to me in my childhood was my my father was a drive-in theater manager and we moved from Loma Linda, California to Imperial beach, California. And then he got transferred to Utah where we had a bunch of drive-ins and a couple of movie theaters. And I was going to school with uh, Navajo Indians from the reservation. And at the time, little big man came out starring Dustin Hoffman and Faye Dunaway. And, um, it was the first time that the camera had pivoted from white settlers or cavalry being attacked by Native Americans to Native Americans being attacked by white people. And the point of view changed. My point of view changed. And because I was going to school with Navajo and I saw the truth about what had happened to this North America, to this, to this, to this land, uh, and the, the savagery of what had happened to those Native Americans, um, it, it opened my eyes to a new way of seeing, a new way of, 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 uh, of, of feeling about other human beings. And um, that was the Arthur Penn film. Um, it, was, it, was, it was deeply, deeply profound to me. 
the Native Americans called themselves human beings. And when I went to meet Stella Adler, the acting teacher that I told you I studied with, when I walked in the room, she said, uh, if you've come to me for me to teach you how to be a movie star, you should turn around and leave right now. I don't teach that. She said, if I'm lucky, I'll teach you to be a human being. And she would, would have never had any idea why that touched me so deeply. And I started crying in, in my audition for the school, uh, you know, but that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a human being um, because I didn't want to be a part of that savagery that it, that it, that it killed you know, so many millions of Native Americans in this in this land. So that was that was a profound movie to me, Little Big Man. And Dustin Hoffman is amazing in the movie, as is Faye Dunaway, as is Jeff Corey, who later became uh, my acting coach. And I directed him in a production of 12 Angry Men. Um, Jeff Corey was Jack Nicholson's teacher. On, you know, he, he coached him a lot. He was, he was blacklisted. Uh, he was an amazing, amazing man, and I, I loved him. Uh, who else was in that movie that was amazing? Uh, Chief Dan George. Uh, he played uh, Dustin Hoffman's Indian grandfather. Uh, um, yeah, it's a, it's an amazing movie. Um, and the other movie uh, is Network. I, I, I love the 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 Patty Chayefsky's script and and uh, the direction by um, Lumet yeah Sidney Lumet brilliant it's just it's prophetic you know it was a movie that that previsioned uh, uh, reality television and and uh, uh, Peter Finch. Uh, is brilliant in it. And, you know, as, as fate would have it, I became uh, great friends with his son, Charles Finch, uh, who's a dear friend. Um, and Faye Dunaway was also in, in, in that. And Faye Dunaway and I worked together on a film. So it was, it was, it was wonderful how, how the, the kismet of, of life, you know, of, of people who, who, have such an effect on you in your life that, that you know that you would meet them later on. I've I've never met Dustin Hoffman, uh, but I've sat across from him in New York at a Knicks game, a New York Knicks basketball game, and I, I was looking at him and I was like, oh my God, it's Dustin Hoffman, and he raised his hand and he waved to me, and the fact that Dustin Hoffman knew who I was was you know, it was, it was like, what? How does that guy know who I am? It's incredible how just hearing hearing you you tell these stories, how connected you get with other people, either through their films or <laughs> as, as as close as a basketball game. And so my my boss and I, we quote the, uh, you go down there a lot. And um, it's as a as sort of a, uh, yeah. just an in-joke with us. But the Custer's calling him the mule skinner. You go down there. You're going to meet. You're going to meet the Cheyenne Nation. You're going to meet the Paul. You go through all the nations that are down there waiting for him. And he said that Custer thinks it's a trick. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, now I feel terrible because these are both blind spots for me, Matthew. So I guess I guess I know what I'm watching later this week is is Network and Little Big Man. <laughs> 
Yeah, start with the little big man. Little big man is okay. It's, it's beautiful, and uh, I'll do that. Yeah, and Faye Dunaway is stunning in it. She's just stunning. I, it, it, when as a little boy watching that movie, I was in fifth grade, so um, she gives Dustin Hoffman a bath, and she's singing "Bringing in the Sheaves." I think is the song, <laughs> and wash and washing him. Uh, I won't I won't say what happens to her later on in the story, but she gives him a bath, and it's a bath that every young man wishes that he could have. <laughs> uh, Matthew, we appreciate you being on. Thank you for taking time out of your day to uh, to talk with us. It's been incredibly uh, entertaining and educational, and uh, and we're so glad that you uh, you were able to to spend a, an hour or so just hanging out and talking about. Uh, Full Metal Jacket and Stanley Kubrick and, and life as an actor with us. Well, thank you very much. So there you go. A couple of great conversations with a couple of really, really great people. If you like what you've heard in these two interviews, then be sure to check out both the Full Metal Jacket audiobook as well as the Full Metal Jacket iPad app. Thanks again for listening, everyone. And until next time, stay positive and keep feeling film.